Volume 1, Chapter 15 of Evelyn, or A Heart Unmasked, by Anna Cora Mollett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 15 Though dead the green leaves and decayed the stem, yet still the spirit of Frankrit lingers, loath to leave its dear abode. Just so, love haunts the heart. L. E. Landon From Catherine Bolton to Elizabeth Montague, April 17th Two months have glided away since I last wrote, tracking their path with some few changes, but only enough to remind me that we journey onwards towards the eternal gold. Dearest Elizabeth, I have passed through a new conflict since I last unveiled my heart to you, but the sunbeam has broken through the cloud and shows me the path which I should follow. You are aware that circumstances have thrown me into daily contact with one to whom I was once not wholly indifferent, but it is what he was or seemed to be that I loved, not what he now is or seems to be. I love not the man merely, but his virtues. When those virtues have vanished, should their empty casket be dear? Alas, memory still lives, and I own that my heart is still engrossed by the image of the past. But I will not follow the dictates of a passion which has not esteem for its basis, lest the airy fabric crumble to the ground and crush me. I have once more become the object of those devoted attentions which fifteen years ago made my heart thrill with ecstasy. And does it thrill now? No. Disappointment and suspicion have stilled its once rapturous pulsation. The past rises before me, and I dare not trust the present. True, I cannot now doubt Mr. Elton's sincerity, for youth and its charms have fled me. Time hath written strange features on my face, and I have neither wealth nor aught else that can allure. Yes, sincere he is, but he is not what my hopes pictured when I first plighted my hand and I will not wed the man who cannot win my mind's approval. Every rebellious feeling shall be subdued. I will still live as I have lived, forgetful of self, and only existing through others. Are you not anxious to hear something more of Ellen and her protégés? Have you an inclination to take a peep at them? The wish is readily granted. Imagine yourself in a clean, airy room on the first floor in a much healthier part of the city than the one to which I introduced you formerly. The same wash-tub upon the rough planks supported by the old kegs stands before the window. Nancy, with her decent dress pinned up at her waist, has her bare arms immersed to the very elbow in soapsuds but the articles which she is diligently washing do not resemble the rags which once filled her tub. Ellen's exertions, and my own, have procured her regular employment, 
and when she takes home her clothes every Saturday night, she is sure of a small sum which will at least pay her rent, and perhaps furnish a few necessities. But look a little further. The old grandmother is sitting up in a rather rickety armchair that once stood in Ellen's bedchamber. The aged woman wears a pair of new spectacles over her eyes, and her hands hold four knitting needles. She is trying to knit a stocking, but the task is evidently an unusual one, for she is obliged to examine every stitch. About the neatly sanded floor creeps an infant in quest of some colored marbles which are rolling around him. The child is clad in a warm dress, and though it is still pale, feeble, and sickly, it bears but little resemblance to the pining little skeleton, which I introduced to your acquaintance scarcely more than two months ago. Beside a very small cooking stove, called by the inventor the poor man's stove, sits the father. His ragged pantaloons have been darned and patched with pieces of various hues until they bear a similarity to Joseph's many-colored coat. Oh, his countenance is ruddy, its expression is depressed, and his eyes are still dull and fixed on vacancy. And Netta, where is she? Direct your eyes to that window, adorned with a roll of green paper in imitation of fashionable transparencies. Netta is sitting upon the sill, for sunlight is fast declining, and she can hardly see the stitches which she is taking in her new apron. If you do not recognize her, I shall not wonder. Her bright-colored hair is combed so smoothly over her pale face. Her eyes look less sunken, and the dark ring about them is gradually disappearing. Her cheeks are not much fuller, but her form gives promise of a speedy expansion. Then her little red striped dress and her check apron are so tidily arranged that you might suppose she momentarily expected a visit from her kind friend, Miss Ellen. But look, there comes Billy, hungry as a lion, and prepared to relish the bowl of bread and milk which his mother is handing to him. He devours his supper in haste, for his books are not yet all sold, but he finds time between every few mouthfuls to pause and recount the exploits of Mark the Smasher. I cannot say that Billy's appearance is much improved. He retains an unconquerable aversion to soap and water, and scuffles that daily and professionally engage a portion of his time give his clothes some slight resemblance to that of the murdered Caesar. Billy is a capital boxer, but he now and then meets his match amongst the newsboys, and not infrequently falls into the retributive hands of the smashers. It is consequently difficult to get a glimpse of his countenance when his nose is not swollen to twice its natural dimensions, nor his forehead scarred, nor one eye curtailed of its original proportions, closed and blackened. Billy still retains his contempt for the lady who never heard of Mark the Smasher, and seldom deigns to honor her with a word. But towards Ellen, who did not so openly betray her ignorance, he invents a sort of rude respect. 
These are changes, but they are not the only ones which the last two months have affected. Give a glance at Ellen's face, and henceforth confess that all real beauty consists in expression. Has not her countenance grown positively lovely? Is not her very look attractive? And her manners? Could you imagine a demeanor more modest yet engaging? For six weeks after Ellen's first commenced her French translation, morning and evening found her pen in hand. For her further convenience, I made her a present of my own little secretary, and that is perhaps one reason why I have written to you so seldom. When not writing, she was either taking exercise or plying her needle, and really she has become an apt seamstress. Her health has visibly improved, and she seems to be too much engrossed to think of her own sufferings, truly a most enviable unconsciousness, a specific for many an ailment. At the end of six weeks, Ellen's translation was completed and corrected and copied off in a bold, legible hand. She then timidly offered the manuscript for my inspection. I spent a couple of days in reading it with her and making such corrections in the style, punctuation, etc., as I thought advisable. Every once and a while, when I struck my pen through a line and altered a phrase or substituted another one, she would heave a sigh and look half discouraged, but I comfort her with some stories about Virgil and Pope, and the interlining and erasures which deface their manuscripts, and she laughed at the comparison and was content. At last, the translation was considered in a state to place in the printer's hands. We spent an hour or two in composing a suitable and taking note to one of the principal publishers in this city, requesting an answer without delay. A week passed on, and no answer came. Ellen's heart began to fail. I suggested that Billy might be dispatched with a second note, and ordered to wait for an answer. My advice was followed. Billy faithfully fulfilled the commission, and on his return placed a large roll of paper in Ellen's hand. Ellen turned pale, and the paper, dropping from her grasp, fell to the ground, burst open, and disclosed the rejected manuscript, accompanied by a coarse piece of fool's cap, folded in the shape of a note. I opened this ominous slip of paper, and learnt that the publishers, to whom Ellen had applied, did not print the publications of unknown authors, and that no remuneration could be expected for similar works. After the first burst of feeling, Ellen bore her disappointment heroically, and, turning to me with a hopeful smile, said, "'There are more publishing houses than one in the city.' It chanced that Mr. Elton entered the parlour at Fleecer's just as Ellen withdrew. Her manuscript was still in my hand, and before I reflected upon the imprudence of the question, I asked if he was acquainted with any publishers in the city. He glanced at the manuscript and replied, "'Yes, with several. Can I serve you in any manner?' 
I could not lose this opportunity of disposing of Ellen's production. I frankly explained to Mr. Eldon our dilemma, requesting that he would keep my communication secret. He promised to do so, and offered to take charge of the manuscript, and presented himself to a publisher with whom he was intimately acquainted. That same evening, just as I was about to retire, he sent me word that if I would return to the parlour it would gratify him exceedingly, as he had something to communicate. I hurried down, and he presented me with fifteen dollars, saying that Ellen's manuscript would shortly be published, and that he had no doubt a second translation of the same link would find as ready a sale. Think of my delight, or rather think of Ellen's, when the next morning I placed the money in her hand. She had never in her life possessed so large a sum, and this was doubly esteemed, because it was her own earnings. She soon devised fifteen hundred different ways of disposing of the fifteen dollars, and in a few moments had settled in that manner every shilling should be expended her remarks were concluded with the assurance that she should pay a visit to the largest depot of foreign books before she slept and that a second translation should be commenced without delay i could not close this letter without one word concerning the fair evelyn she has been indisposed lately and unable to leave the house she sees but little company, and her spirits are frequently depressed. Sometimes she suddenly bursts forth in an enthusiastic strain about the unborn infant which she longs to behold, and then she will as suddenly exclaim in mournful accents, Oh, I wish it may never see the light, or seeing it know nothing but happiness. Mr. Merritt is more tender, more considerate, and more devoted than ever, and humours her most unreasonable caprices. Colonel Damoreau is still a constant visitor, but Evelyn frequently refuses to see him, and when he is admitted she appears more abstracted, melancholy, and restless. The hour of her trial and her happiness is approaching." heaven grant that she may clasp a living child to her maternal bosom. End of chapter 15